Good morning again. Let me welcome you to Church of the City. My name is Russell. I'm a teaching pastor here. Um, and, and I want to I bring us all uh, into something that's, that's become part of who we are as a community of people. And when we use that language of community, when we talk about Church of the City, we, we do that on purpose, um, intentionally. Because we, I think, oftentimes disassociate what we mean by the word church, and, and we, we give a definition that maybe it never was intended to have and has been a bit dangerous and reckless in, in our culture, in our time, in the American storyline of trying to follow Jesus. The concept of church is, is community. Uh, the word originally meant a gathered group of people, uh, much like what we have right here. And, and to be the kind of community that is doing its absolute best to wrap itself around Jesus of Nazareth, it takes some energy on our part. To, to both name what we are, who we are, where we're going, and then to put into practice some elements that, that might look like us taking steps down the road with Jesus. And one of the things that we, we do often here is in this gathered community is we take a breath together and we slow down and we do our absolute best to, to reorient life around Jesus again. Now, this practice isn't bulletproof. Um, in fact, as I thought about it this morning, um, contemplating even should we do it, um, there's issues like the room is tragically hot and the fan is a bit noisy and our kids are singing songs and there just isn't quiet in downtown Portland. It's, it's almost um, impossible to find quiet space. So typically what we do is we take a moment at this point in our gathering and we just have this minute, one minute, 60 seconds to be quiet, to reorient our soul and focus and think and pray just in silence. Well, silence um, escapes us often. And so the idea um, that has come this morning as we finish up our, our journey through the section of scriptures that relate to the storyline of Queen Esther, I thought it would be appropriate for us, um, and Rhea, man, just unbelievable. Thank you for leading us towards this as well this morning um, in our communion thought and, and around um, even the communication card. One of the things that, that Esther is keenly putting in front of us is an honest approach to, to our world. Just, just not being shy about naming the fact that, that our world is, is messier than we, we want to admit. And so this morning, instead of things being quiet, I'm kind of excited they aren't. Instead of it being comfortable, I'm glad it's warm. Um, I'm glad that we're sitting in chairs, you're sitting in chairs, that are not comfortable. <laughs> My stool is pretty good, actually, because they are all small reminders of the reality that this world is not what it ought to be. It's not supposed to be this broken. It's not supposed to be this difficult. It's not supposed to be this sick and tainted and messy as it is. And still, it's important for us to slow for a moment and focus our attention on the one and only hope for something that goes further than the pain and the suffering and the brokenness. So here's what I'm asking from you. We're going to take 60, 60 seconds to just simply not talk, to do our best to settle our soul, to be here, to be present, but I'm going to ask you to exercise your imagination, the work of your soul, your prayers, to be thinking specifically about the difficult things personally in your life and in this world around us. That can be Portland itself, it can be your neighborhood, it can be your school, it can be a place where you go and you work, anything's in bounds. But I'd like you to take an honest look at the difficult things around you for the next 60 seconds. Fair? Understand what we're asking? So we're going to take 60 seconds. It'll feel tragically long, um, but it is just one minute of your life. So let's just take a moment, center ourselves, and breathe.
God, while I watch the secondhand sweep past 60 small ticks, my mind has just been reeling and thinking on, on some of the hardest things in my world and some of the hardest things that I'm aware of. And I have to admit, like, my, my honest reaction to it emotionally and I think just in my mind is, it is a bit of hopelessness. Is that those things feel um, too big, too overwhelming. And I'm struggling to orient myself to you because I see these things and, and everything in me wants to be oriented to them. They, they just, they're so gripping and they're so big and they're so challenging. So God, in these next few moments as we're together again as a gathered community of people, Jesus, I pray that you would do what you're really good at, what you've been doing since the beginning, since you designed us and since you continued on with us, and particularly when you showed up on earth in flesh and bones and walked among us, God, please come into our world and interrupt the pain and the brokenness. Again, come and find us in the middle of the struggles we've got and help us see you for who you are and what you are in the middle of it all. We love you, Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Anticipation. Anticipation is one of those things that if it's let lingered too long, can really destroy us. A couple nights ago, um, I had the bright idea. Actually, this is, let me tell you the whole story. I had the bright idea about a week ago to tell my children, who are uh, almost seven and four, that we were going to camp out in the backyard. Sounds like a good idea, right? When you think about it, easy, simpler than getting everything, going, packing up, go somewhere. Fantastic. So we, uh, we set up the tent, and we you know, lit a fire in the backyard, and we did s'mores, and the kids went nuts because they had all the sugar in them. And so we had to make the, the judgment call, we're going to early next morning, Let's delay the, the camp out overnight in the backyard. Which, if you know anything about children, those kind of whiplash changes are really hard on them, right? There's just no, no bones about it. But we had other things we had to do, and so we, we changed the plan. They dealt with it well enough, and we moved on. So we leave town for a few days. We get back, and um, as soon as the kids see the tent set up in the backyard, it's still there, you know, asking, when, when, can, we, when can we camp out? Uh, and they're, I mean, they're just getting more and more and more excited. There was an inverse amount of anticipation on my part. Uh, their anticipation was excitement. Mine was this weird, gut-wrenching thing of like fear and dread going on in my stomach. And it wasn't because I was afraid of the raccoons in my backyard or thinking that we're going to get you know, mauled by a cougar or something. That just doesn't happen in the city. We're cool. Mine was, I'm going to miss out on a night of sleep. And I know it. And so as it's getting closer that we, we're going to do this, like our, my kids keep asking, like, when are we going to do it? And I'm, I keep like putting it off. Uh, maybe the next night. Maybe, you know, all week last week it was maybe, maybe tomorrow. Well, you know, probably, you know, sometime during the weekend. But you got to be on your best behavior on Friday because if, it, if, it, if you don't do that and, you know, and you're out of control, then we're not going to get, get to do it and all this. And I get to see both of my kids, like every time they get in the tent, like they just get lit up with anticipation that something good is coming. And the closer and closer we get to Friday night, internally, the anticipation in the exact opposite form is welling up in me. I'm like, oh my gosh, 
I have to give up one night of sleep for this. And you know, you're probably laughing, especially if you don't have children who are four and seven, about giving up a night of sleep. Really, it is giving up a night of sleep. I mean, the ground is fine. I like sleeping on the ground. That's okay. But I knew there was going to be no end to the number of bathroom runs my children were going to need. I mean, at times they were going to need to change beds because the bed they were in was not the one they wanted to be in. Um, and then there was the, this, mo- this creeping thought, and I'm going to rat her out right now because I get the power to, this creeping thought that I was going to get left alone in the tent without my wife. <laughs> and much to my amazement, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so Friday night, we camp out in the tent, and my kids couldn't have been happier. I, re- I distinctly remember several times going to sleep. Yeah, because that's how it works. You go to sleep, you wake up, you go to sleep again. Several times going to sleep thinking this one thought. I cannot wait for a nap tomorrow. And that right there, that crystallized thought, in the midst of losing something, it just, it just like a watershed on me concerning what we're talking about in the storyline of Esther. And we've been through this book. And if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go back and listen to it online because the, the text itself is just staggeringly beautiful and tragic at the same time. Basically, this is an account that that for most of us who grew up around Christianity or around the ideas of faith is deeply disturbing because there are no, no punches pulled when it comes to explaining how absolutely broken humanity is. I mean, the whole way through, I'm not going to go back through all of it for you at this moment, the whole way through, at every turn, every single person in the storyline is either expressly giving away their brokenness and imposing on other people or they have to deal with the brokenness of the people around them in some really tragic, messed up forms. And then I think about that. And I fast forward the tape, right? Like, that's 500 years before Jesus shows up. You know, we now live in a whole new space and time. You know, we're after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Things are obviously better than they were then. Or at least I've been told my whole growing up Christian experience. But the reality is, there's still an awful lot of pain and brokenness around us all the time. In fact, the connective tissue between us today in the 21st century and them in the 6th century BC is, is so deep and so intertwined. And basically, it amounts to the fact that they were human then and we are human now and we deal with the same garbage. You see, this concept of anticipation comes to bear when we come face-to-face with how, how tragically broken things are. And we, we use words, especially inside of like Christian conversations, like, like hope. That we're hopeful that something better is coming. In fact, we, we have a whole set of language for it, a subset to hope that we talk about, and we talk about here a lot in this community. And I want to I bring it to the table as we conclude Esther this morning. And the language is this language of the now and the not yet. Maybe that's familiar language for you, maybe it's not. Let me explain what it means. That we have this like really strange position in the world where we, we live, if we're honest, inside of the confines of a story that we don't have control over, that we were born into, that's a real big mess. And in the middle of that storyline, We want something better. We're looking for something better. In fact, I would put money on the fact that you're here in this room in this moment because of that exact impulse, that you are looking for something better. Relationships, connection with God, way about doing your own life, thinking about who you are as a human being. You're looking for something better. But then we come to the the end of that pursuit, and, and we realize 
it, it isn't full enough. It isn't complete enough. It isn't good enough. I can put on all the moral behaviorism that the American church tells me I ought to put on, and I still mess up, and other people still harm me. It still isn't complete enough yet. And we come to that space where we have to deal with the angst of all of our best attempts, all of our best behaviors, all of our best thinking not being good enough. Many people at that particular point say, I should go look somewhere else. I should go find something else to find that completeness, that wholeness that I'm looking for. This idea of the now and not yet is hugely important for our understanding of who we are inside of, inside of Christ, inside of our faith. If you're someone who's exploring Christianity and you, and you want to understand what it's all about, this is what it's all about. That you are a broken human. That you are a mess. And so are the people around you. So is the person you married. So is the person that, that you birthed. So are the people who birthed you. So are the people in the house next door to you. We are broken humans. We're a mess. And as broken humans, our pursuit of hope has to start somewhere. And as it begins, as it grows, as it emerges, it comes into crystal clarity is that we long for something in the future that is full and complete while we live today in something that is tragically incomplete. It is both now and not yet the hope and the fullness that we're looking for. And we have to deal with that. We have to become really good bedfellows with the fact that as, as hard as I try to follow Jesus with everything in me, it's still going to be rocky. The world around me is still going to harm me. Things are still not going to be as full and complete as we want them to be. And as I lay in that tent that night, thinking about the nap I wanted to have the next day, that, by the way, I never got. That's exactly what was going on. There was good things there. My kids were in heaven for a moment. They had their stuffies, and they were cuddling each other, and they were kicking me, and it was perfect for them. And yet, I could see this, this, isn't, this isn't perfect. This isn't the complete picture. This isn't the end of the story. And definitely for me, it, it, was, it was a moment of having to give up a night of rest. See, I think quite often that is exactly the kind of tension we have to live in if this thing called faith is ever going to be livable. The very first funeral I did as a pastor, this is about 12 years ago. I'd been out three years in ministry. The very first funeral that I did was for a 19-year-old young man who had a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And you think about going into ministry and church and life, believing so optimistically that everything's going to be okay. And you sit with a mother who's beyond all the tears. She's well beyond the pain of the sobbing and into the numbness of trying to figure out what's going on in her world. And there just aren't words to express how bad this is, how wrong this is, how this never should have happened. And the attempt to, to hold on to some kind of cliche or thing that makes it all right and all better just isn't there. It, it, in, in full view, the very first time in my life I had to acknowledge to another human being 
this isn't how it's supposed to go. See, we live in these moments where we understand how tragic it is, how broken it is. And we have to make a decision in light of those moments. Are we still going to be hopeful? Is there still something good here? Is there still something that is emerging that is better than the feelings and the experiences of this moment? That particular woman in her own journey of faith, was at the cusp of saying, yes, I want to follow Jesus with my life. And the disruptive nature of the loss in her life and the lack of understanding of it all, as I watched her, I thought, this is going to derail everything, right? Like, there's no solution to this. I can't fix it. It was about a month later that Janet called me after the funeral, after things had settled a bit, and she wanted to talk. We got together for a cup of coffee, and we talked And she was recalling something I had said to her about a year prior. And she said, tell me more about the now and not yet. Tell me more about having hope when it feels like there isn't any. See, what we're looking at in the light of this passage, in the light of this this storyline of Esther, is not just an ancient text. It's our story. That it's worse than you think it is. And in light of it being worse than you think it is, that isn't the end of the story either. There is still something emerging and percolating inside of how broken it is that is good and hopeful and emerging. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it. We're in Esther chapter 9. And this is, again, the conclusion for this particular series. If, If you want to go back and listen and catch up on it, please do. The Cliff Notes version of where we are in the text right now is that we are in the Persian Empire at a time when that is the empire on earth. And the king is a narcissistic megalomaniac who believes he is God in flesh and bones. The kind of guy who throws a six-month party for himself. The kind of guy who asks his wife to dance naked in front of his drunk friends. The kind of guy who will murder people who betray him very publicly. And as this has all emerged... A young Jewish woman has become the new queen. Her name is Esther, i.e. the name of the storyline. And as she has become the queen, she is pressed into an abusive, uh, dictatorial kind of relationship where she's divorced from all of the people around her. She has had no contact for some time with them. And in that time, an enemy of the Jews has arisen who's put a decree out in the name of the king to murder every Jewish person on a particular day in December. Now, this all happens in the month of January or so, and so everyone's got it in their mind that over the next year, they've got to figure out what side they're on. Are they going to follow the decree of the king to murder every Jew inside of the Persian Empire, or are we going to defy the king and protect our neighbors and our friends who happen to be Jewish? Well, what's gone on, what's happened is that enemy of the Jews, a guy by the name of Haman, who is the archetype enemy, we talked about this a few sermons ago, if you recall, There's a 1,500-year family feud between Haman and the Jews. And he has the power now to do something about it. He wants to destroy the Jews. So this decree is his way of doing it. But he's found out, and the queen herself emerges and and, and owns the fact that she's Jewish, and this is actually pitted against her. And so King Xerxes, the king of Persia, says, we're not going to do this. We're not going to murder all the Jews inside of the empire. And, And as it emerges... Uh, this, this guy, Haman, who's opposed to the Jews, 
he himself um, is, is now going uh, up against the king and the queen, and it's never a safe place to be, so he is murdered by the king. But there's a problem still lingering here, and this is where we are in the story. December is coming. I mean, I also say winter is coming too, I suppose. It would be a safe way to say that. But as, as December comes, um, and as the day gets closer and closer, the, um, the challenge isn't that um, people in the empire don't understand what's gone on in the capital. There's been this turmoil between the king and the king's second man and the queen, and now things have kind of settled and the dust is down. Everyone kind of understands that, I believe. In fact, the king even puts out a decree to say, all right, we're going we're gonna to rewrite this. I can't you know, take that first decree back that you should go murder your Jewish neighbors and whatnot. But he puts out a decree saying, if anyone rises up in arms against you as a Jewish individual, you have the right to protect yourself with violence. You have the, you have the right to assemble in the middle of your towns and your cities, and you can protect yourself. And if, if you're attacked, you can go and attack the, the leaders and families of the people groups who attack you. Now, let me just name this. I mean, this happened last week in our, our text. This is, this is problematic. This is not the way it's supposed to go either. This isn't the perfect solution to the situation. But it is something. It's something that's emerging to look at and say, okay, I'm not going to leave a, a people group who are completely vulnerable just at the mercy of the people around them. And here's the reason why not. I mean, I think I, I read length about the end of the book of Esther because it's bothered me for years on how this emerges. And there's this whole group of people, when they read the end of Esther, they're like, you know what, it's justice, the Jews get to rise up and they get you know, their chance to, to kill the people who are going to attack them. It's fine, it's okay. Other people are like, you know, they didn't really need that because the new decree said it was against the law to actually murder the Jews inside the Persian Empire, so, so no big deal, don't sweat it. The issue is not whether or not there's a law and whether or not you trust your particular neighbor, whether they're going to come after you with uh, an axe or a sword and try to murder you and your family. The reality is this, that among the 127 provinces of Persia exist roughly 125 to 150 different people groups who have not always been friendly with one another. Huge amounts of racism, ethnocentricity, beliefs about other kinds of people and groups exist within this huge empire called Persia. See, the reality is there's a decree that is in force from the king saying, if you want to kill your Hebrew neighbor, it's legal. Sure, they can protect themselves, but you, you can do it. You can kill your, your Jewish neighbor if you want to. As I thought about this, and I thought about our contemporary storyline in, in the United States, it began, it began to emerge. You know, in, the, in the mid-1940s, 50s, and 60s, as the civil rights movement begins to get traction in the U.S., it would be impossible to tell people who held a view of their brown and dark-colored neighbors, just don't be racist anymore. The impossibility of that actually making a difference is tragically in view for us. Because it's exactly what Congress did. 1964, the Civil Rights Act was enacted in the U.S., making it illegal to discriminate based on race or um, gender or based on, um, at that point, 
um, any other thing that was emerging at the time that you would want to discriminate on. And, and that has grown in time. Now we have gender issues as far as your gender identity and sexual orientation added to it. But it doesn't matter if someone legislates and says it's now wrong to be racist. People are so racist. It doesn't matter if a king says to his empire, don't kill the Jews. If you want to kill the Jews, you'll take up the chance to do it. So we get to this point in the story that is a mess, that is tragically incomplete. And yet it gives us a glimpse of something that's very important for us to understand. So we are in Esther chapter 9, and we're going to read through just a few chunks here. Starting in verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, now this is for us called December, for them it's the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. I lost my place, excuse me. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. And I'll stop here for a second. I remind you, Mordecai, remember, he's one of the lead characters. He's the, uh, the adopted father of Esther. He's the one who's been instructing her, giving her wisdom. He's Jewish. He's the one who has come up against Haman. He's the one who refused to bow down to Haman. He is the archetype representative of the Jews, while Haman is the archetype uh, representative of the Amalekites, and this epic battle is playing out inside the Persian Empire. And as such, when Haman is, if you recall, when he's murdered by the king, all of Haman's assets are given to Mordecai, and his position is as well. So now this Jewish man is now second in command of all of Persia. And the decree has gone out from Mordecai to the, the whole kingdom in the name of the king. If you're Jewish, you can protect yourself. And what's gone on is people now have scratched their heads and, and asked themselves the question, practically, who's going to win this fight? And what we see emerging in this first part of the chapter is we see alliances being made. The governors, the set traps, the leaders of the towns, they're all thinking, you know what, Haman's gone now. And the guy who's been installed in his place, he's Jewish. So they've all come around to the idea that it is not good for them to continue on with the first decree, and they go to the second one, that they're not going to come up in arms against the Jews. Now, this is important. Things that the, the, the power struggle has begun to swing towards the Jews. And yet still, even though that's happened, people are going to try their best to take up arms against the Jews. Now, pick up in verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and these names are, are big ones, guys, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adaliah, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha. I practice those, guys, for your benefit. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now put your finger there for just one second because we need to clarify one thing here. If you recall, you can go back in chapter 8 and you can read this. The decree given, the second decree given, did not give the Jews permission 
to wanton go out and murder and kill people. That was not within the decree. They could assemble and protect themselves against anyone who came up against them. So the language here in chapter 9, some have debated and said, well, it sounds like the Jews just went on killing sprees, right? They just went out and they murdered all their enemies if they wanted to. We have to go back to the decree and we have to, I think, put a firm foot down and say that wouldn't have been tolerated. That wouldn't have been allowed under the decree. The Jews in this moment are fighting the enemies who have come up against them, the ones who have risen up. We're going to see more of that as this emerges. So continue on. Verse 11. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Hamadatha, I'm sorry, the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. So Esther says, if it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded this to be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled ten, the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, so this is the next day after, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and got relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and the 14th, and then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. This is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Now stop here. Let's just catch up on what's going on here. The first decree and the second decree are both in force, and they're both in competition with one another. To be perfectly frank with you, I don't understand how any government could, could tolerate this kind of disparity between the two different decrees, but this is how it worked in the ancient Near East, particularly in the Persian and, uh, and Median empires. The king couldn't undo any one of his decrees that he had put out. If he did, it would be a violation of himself. So we have this massive issue within the people group living in the Persian Empire. And I don't know about you, but this is deeply disturbing. The issues at stake here. The issues of people picking up arms and fighting one another. I mean, just, just fast forward into our place in our time right now. Just this last weekend, there was a protest here in downtown Portland between two different ideological groups. And it's, at this point, I'm not saying it's a relevant point on which side of the ideology you find yourself. I'm simply saying we get bent out of shape when people get minor injuries from that kind of, um, of episode. And we, we should, we ought to um, get riled up when violence begins to emerge in places where it could get and escalate into dangerous territory where people could be harmed or killed. It's easy to look back in the Old Testament and say 500 people died in a day and breeze right past it. Can you imagine if 500 people died in the city of Portland because of street fighting? This would stop our community. And you have to believe this stopped the community of Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. This is a big deal. People are openly opposed to one another, and they both have validation from different decrees from the king to do what they're doing, to fight one another. And I don't know what to do with all of this other than to say this. This solution is tragically short of what's necessary to actually resolve the issues at stake. Let me say that again. This solution in the Persian Empire is tragically short to solve the issues that are at stake. Now, I am grateful 
for Esther. I'm grateful for Mordecai. I'm even grateful for King Xerxes, who's willing to have the courage to do something about the issues that are happening inside of his empire. But I have a problem, personally, with this being the final word on how this ought to go in any culture, in any time. And if you recall, if you come back in your mind and think that this particular issue stems from two brothers who got in a squabble over a blessing 1,500 years before. And these individuals living in the 6th century B.C., are dealing with the after-effects echoing through history that are imposed on them, I think it's safe for us to admit this isn't how it's supposed to go. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And even the solution, what we see here, is something that falls tragically short of what we want to have happen. To be really frank with you, I want seven rounds of kumbaya in the Citadel of Susa happening. And that doesn't happen. It just doesn't emerge in this story. What we're confronted with, what we have to deal with here, is the fact that messy humans, broken humans, sinful humans, are still doing broken things, even when they're trying their best to right a wrong. So the text goes on. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the province of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually, the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. Now, I'm going to skip the next section. I'm not going to read through it because basically the writer of Esther just repeats um, what we just read. If you want to read it on your own time, please do. totally encourage you to do that. But I want to stop for a second. And I want, I, want to, I want to look and examine this particular set of circumstances. And I want to, I want to transport it into the here and now this way. As we look at that storyline, as we look at how, how messy the situation is, how messy the solution is, I mean, in some ways, we see different aspects of justice emerging, something we call punitive justice, right? Someone does something wrong, and you penalize them. Haman, you violate the king, you get murdered. Uh, you guys who are opposed to the Jews, you guys raise up in arms against the Jews, you could get murdered, or at least get harmed. It's punitive. But the, the issue is, we're not looking for that kind of resolution as humans. And I would offer this to say, for most of us, we're convinced God isn't either. I mean, this is coming out of King Xerxes' mind. It's coming out of human minds. This isn't a decree from God saying this is how it's supposed to go. What we see emerging here is, is something that is a little bit short, or quite a bit short, of everything that we want out of this life. But we would be remiss if we didn't try to put this into our own storyline just a little bit. Because it's easy to say, well, that's you know, 2,500 years ago. That's how they did it. We're much more evolved now as humans. That we are much better at this than they are. So I just want to put this out here for a second, and I want, I want to just name two primary sources of unresolved pain, okay? Just, just two different sources that I think are hugely important for us to be thinking about in light of the story, and then we'll get back to it and conclude it here in just a second. The first source is this, the kind of things that have been done to you. See, the thing about pain and the thing about the source of pain is that not all of it is your own doing. As you look around your own life, as you look around your own world and your own existence, honestly, we're really good at taking this pointer finger of ours and waving it around and naming all the places other people have harmed us. Now, I understand that's not every one of you. Some of you are deeply introspective humans who have a hard time naming the external problems. But just for a second, let's just name this. One source of unresolved pain in our world is everybody else and the things that they choose to do, 
and the things they choose to do that affects you. Okay, that's one source. But there's another source here. The other source is what you've done, the things that you choose to actively do. See, here's, here's the issue. The reality of the broken story we live in is both a product of the people sitting next to us and of you. Nobody escapes. And I put this up here in chart form for this reason. Because I think it is as simple as this to say, we have all contributed in meaningful ways to the brokenness that we experience. And for us to get angry at God at something like Esther and say, why didn't you just resolve it perfectly? Why didn't Kumbaya come in the citadel of Susa? Why couldn't we resolve it that way? And the answer is because of humans, because of autonomous, free will people who are making decisions in real time to continue on in broken and sinful ways. That we sit here as humans, as the product of so much unresolved pain, so much unresolved brokenness. And a lot of it, man, it stems from people around you. And another big chunk of it comes from you. And to name that and clarify that and put that out there, and then put it in view of, okay, if that is true, then what? See, if, if Esther's doing nothing for us, what it is doing is it is building the anticipation for something better. It is building the hope for something more complete by showing us and putting a magnifying glass on how shitty things are. And from there saying, what will we do about it? Are we content with living in the muck and the mire and the pain and the brokenness and the sin of it all? Or are we intent on finding increasing amounts of resolution? And see, what we see here is we see a step towards resolution. People who are vulnerable get to protect themselves. That is a win. But I'm just going to name it. It just falls way short of the fullness that they were hoping for and what we ought to hope for. It's the now and the not yet. You see, 500 years before Jesus puts flesh and bones on and walks into our storyline, these people give us a beautiful picture of the need for God to show up, to do something more complete than's ever been done in human history. So as we think about our sources of pain, as we think about who we are, let's think about this for a second in light of what would change if we chose, if we opted not just to sit in the mire of our own pain, but start to look again towards the hope of what would a more complete, more whole, more hopeful version of this look like? I mean, you could put so many things in these categories. You could put your family in there. Where have you been the source of pain and where have others been the source of pain in your family? And what would hope look like there? You could put your friendships in there. You could put any kind of thing, abstract or real form. Put trust in there. Every single one of you have lost trust with other people and have violated other people's trust. It's happened. So what does a redeemed, renewed, more whole, more complete version of trust look like? And here's the kicker for anything we put on here. How in the world are we going to find that something better on our own? We simply won't. You see, the anticipation, the now and the not yet of Esther is the coming of Christ, the coming of God in flesh and bones to say there is a better way a more whole, more complete way. So step one for us is looking there to him for his guidance, the way he lived, and patterning our life after him. But he left it in the hands of you and I, in our cultures, in our times, in our languages, to be connected to one another and be deeply connected with him 
as we anticipate the hope of something better to come. See, I think what would change the city of Portland is not a group of people trying to be more moral, trying to change their behaviors. I think what would change Portland, what would change your relationships, what would change your family groups, is a group of people who are a little bit more hopeful that something better could grow if we simply patterned our life a little bit more closely after the ways and the teachings and the hope of Jesus. Can you imagine if that was infused into the storyline of Esther? Can you imagine? I mean, I just I read this and I laughed at it, but um, I also cried at it. Um, a prominent pastor in the U.S. came out this week in Oregon and said, wouldn't it be amazing if Governor Kate Brown became a Christian? I don't know if you read anything about this. And our, our governor, she's not a believer. She's not a Christian. And my first impulse was like to laugh. I'm like, that'll never happen. My second one was like, man, that would be amazing, but that'll never happen. The, my belief system is so entrenched in like, because King Xerxes, he could never figure out who God is and follow him and make better decisions. But my hope has to be pinned to the reality that he could, that Governor Kate Brown could. Those are things out of my control, but what if, what if I could? What if my life, my thoughts, my, my thinking was just a little bit more closely associated with the teachings and the ways and the hope of Jesus? See, that moves the needle. That changes your life. That changes my life. That changes the lives of the people around us. When our temptation is to throw something back in the face of the person who's hurting us, when our temptation is to continue on in the muck and the mire of it all, to resist it, and to be a part of the wholeness of God again. Now, I have about another half hour worth of notes that I'm not going to talk about this afternoon or this morning, uh, for your sake and for mine. But I want to land with this. There's, there's one phrase that I want to put out here that I think this is the sum total of the book of Esther. And it's this. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. The now and the not yet. It means that we live like Jesus' hope is fully possible in every single broken situation of life right now even while we wait for hope yet to come. This is the story of Esther, sum total. That we can live like things are going to get better, even while things are hard, even while they aren't perfect. And that is what it means to take steps following Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand up with me if you would. So we conclude the story of Esther as we move through this, typically I pray and that's transitional. We move on in our gathering. But from time to time, I really like to, to speak a blessing. And so today, if you would allow me, I would like to pray a blessing over this community, over you, as we go towards uh, worship again. So if you would pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you for being everything that we aren't and giving us a crystal clear picture of hope in the middle of things being, being a pretty big mess. God, may we be the kind of people who embrace hope in a way that is fresh and life-giving and renewing for us and the people around us. God, may we look increasingly like Jesus as we navigate hard situations in life. God, may we find renewed strength and renewed endurance as we look to you for guidance in the middle of pain. 
God, may we forgive ourselves for the places we've contributed to the pain of others around us, and may we choose not to continue on that way. God, may we look to these people 2,500 years ago for guidance, for a picture of something better. Jesus, we need you. We need you to change things in our world. So please, start with us. Pray in your name. Amen.